Well, this morning's sermon text answers what might be the most important question for a person to ask, uh, the most important question we can ask together and that you as church members could be asking. And the question is really simple. The question is, who is Jesus? Jesus is the one that we are gathered to worship this morning, isn't he? And, and if we are Christians, because we worship the Christ. And if you don't know him, we're going to call you into a relationship this morning. And so for all those reasons, you're going to want to know, who is he? Some of us have been learning about him for years, decades even, and we have found that every time we go to him, we can learn more about him. You can never exhaust all of the riches that, that, that he is. So we're going to learn as much as we can about him this morning, asking the question, who is this Jesus that we have gathered to worship and that this whole religion is all about? Uh, the reason we're doing that is because we're walking through the gospel of Luke together. And as we do that, we're in now the second story in the gospel of Luke where an angel will appear to Luke's mother-to-be named Mary. He will tell her that, I'm sorry, not Luke's mother-to-be, Jesus' mother-to-be, Mary. Some of y'all caught that. I heard a couple chuckles. Yeah. Uh, He will tell her, who is this Jesus going to be? He'll answer the question, who's he going to be? This is it. We want to explore everything that he is this morning, but we'll look at one really important part of who he is and what it means for our lives. Let's look at Luke chapter 1, verse uh, 26 to 33 together. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. To a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and he said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Let's respond to that reading together. I'll say the words of the Lord, and would you respond, may all flesh tremble. The words of the Lord, may all flesh tremble. Okay, so through that story, Jesus Christ calls every person everywhere to honor him as king. And he does this a few ways. First of all, through the anticipation that builds up to the story, the anticipation that the story creates. Then through the glory of the angel appearing to Mary like this, and then finally through the words that he says about just who he will be. So we're going to look at that in order this morning. Look at the buildup, the anticipation, and then the angel appearing and the angel's words themselves. This anticipation that this story is just so full of, well, it's part of a long line and a long story in the scriptures. It fulfills a theme that has happened many times where a woman who we did not expect would give birth miraculously gives birth to a very important child. And as this story and the one before it come together, it it really feels like everything God has done up to this point is leading us to this, like it's finally 
happening and all coming together. Like that episode before the last episode in the season of the TV show, where the whole point of the episode is just to tell you that in the next episode, things are going to be awesome. It's finally all going to happen. We got these two enunciations here to tell us what is about to happen is a big deal. Now, in order to examine that, I need to take you back to last week's story and think about how that fulfills some many patterns in the Old Testament. So let's go back in our minds to last week. What happened last week? There was a man named Zechariah in the temple, and he and his wife were advanced in years. It says she was past the age of childbearing. She had never had any children, and they were very righteous people. An angel appeared to Zechariah while he was offering incense in the temple, and told him that his wife Elizabeth was going to bear a son in her old age and that he would be a great and mighty prophet who would turn people back to him, preparing them to receive the Lord. Now that's an incredible story, but it does more than just amaze us with what is happening there. It is picking up on themes in the Old Testament. Elizabeth is not the first woman who we would not expect to bear a child who miraculously does bear one. There are many women who come before her in the Old Testament like this. You might think of Sarah, or then she bears a son, Isaac, and then Isaac's wife, Rebekah, barren for many years, and then bears two sons, Jacob and Esau, and then Jacob's wife, Rachel, is barren for many years, and then bears children. Later in the scriptures, a man named Manoah has a wife, and they have no children together, but an angel appears to them, tells them they will have a son, and she bears the mighty Samson, the great judge. And then still later, a woman named Hannah bears no children for a long time and then bears Samuel, the great prophet. So as this happens again, it has this feeling of, oh, God is beginning to work again like he did in the old days. He hasn't forgotten about us. He hasn't stopped working. It's happening again. But it's bigger than that because each of those Old Testament stories have wonderful little unique things about them that all happen in this story. So there's a sense that this one is better than all the others. Let's compare them for a minute. The first one of those stories is the story of Sarah and what makes her very unique among these women who miraculously bear a great child is that not only has she been barren for many years, but she's past the age of childbearing. The other ones, that's not true of them, but that's true of her. And so we look back to Sarah and say, wow, they were all miracles. But that one, that was an incredible miracle. She was, she was 80 and her husband 90 when she bore this son, Isaac. Well, that happens here in last week's story as well. Elizabeth, like Sarah, was past the years of childbirth. Kind of, kind of a double miracle, the Lord overcoming both barrenness and the age. As well, one thing that makes Sarah unique is that she didn't quite believe the promise when it was given to her, and the Lord corrected her for that. Some of you know that story well. Likewise, in last week's story, Zechariah did not believe the angel when he told him this, and the Lord corrected him for that. So little hints that, ooh, what the Lord did in Sarah, he's about to do again. In later stories, we read of Rebecca for many years, for 20 years, unable to conceive. And then when she does... It's through prayer. It says Isaac prayed for his wife, and then she conceived and bore a son. And Luke picks up on that in last week's story, too. The people are gathered around the temple praying when the Lord gives this announcement. There's a link to prayer and mighty works of God. In a later story, the story of Manoah and his wife bearing Samson, 
there's an incredible appearance from God. The Lord comes down, an angel of the Lord comes down. There is an offering being offered up, and by the end of it, the, the angel goes up in the smoke of the offering like this. It would be such an awesome movie scene, right? That makes it different from those other stories. They got this incredible visitation from a glorious angel. The others didn't get that quite. Well, Zechariah gets that too, right? That story has an incredible story where an angel appears to him, terrifies him, and many of the same things happen while an offering is being offered up. And then lastly, when Hannah bears Samuel, uh, the text is very careful to say the word of the Lord was rare in those days. The Lord had not spoken for a long time, but Samuel is to be a great and mighty prophet, Well, that's true in the story of Zechariah as well. The Lord had not spoken for a long time, 400 years of silence, they call it. And all of a sudden, their baby, John, was going to be a great and mighty prophet. So not only is the Lord doing the kind of things he has once done in the Old Testament, it's as if they are all building up to this one. All the wonderful qualities about the other stories are coming true all at once in this story. So we get the sense that this baby, John, he must be even more important than all the others. Could he be the most important baby ever to be born? Well, Jesus does say he's the greatest of men born of women. The feeling that it gives to you is that the Lord is working like he was once working, only more powerfully. He is about to do something more wonderful than he did in Sarah's womb and more wonderful than he did in Hannah's womb, if we could even believe it. So that's where the previous story left us. Like we're thinking something big is going to happen here. So it's very significant that the next thing that happens is he does it again. Right? That never happened before. Right? It was at least a generation apart that these miracles happened. But boom, boom, like that. The biggest one that had ever happened. And then now we're going to see an even bigger one. Well, now we're even more at the edge of our seats. Right? This is going to be wonderful. Whatever it is, something incredible is about to happen. Two miraculous babies in a row. What could the Lord be doing? And what's more, we have signs in these stories that the second baby is going to be even greater than the first baby. So we're just shaking and waiting to see what this baby is going to be. Now, the stories start out very similar to each other, but eventually some differences show us that the second baby is much greater than the first. In both stories, either Zechariah or Mary see an angel. They are troubled when they see the angel. The angel tells them not to be afraid, for the Lord favors them very much. The angel tells them they're going to have a son miraculously. And then the angel tells them the son's name. So we got enough to know these are parallel stories. But then things take a very different turn. And those two stories are very different from each other other than that. For instance, uh, if you look back in verse 15 from last week's story, the angel told Zechariah that his son would be great before the Lord. You may see it there. Great before, that means that he will be in the service of the Lord and he will be great among the Lord's servants, standing before the Lord, his king. Now, if we flip back to today's passage in verse 32, The second baby, Jesus, will just be great. He's not great in anybody's service or great before somebody. He is just plain 
great. So something is different between these two babies. This next part isn't in last week's story, but in a later story in verse 76, John's father Zechariah will give a prophecy and say, you, my son, will be prophet of the Most High. John is expected to be a prophet of the Most High. But in today's story, in verse 32, Jesus is to be not prophet of the Most High, son of the Most High. Son is better deal than prophet. This baby must be better than the other baby. Now, I told you before how John's story is kind of the peak of many miraculous births that have come before. It is like the ones before with Sarah and Rachel and Rebecca and all of the rest, but it's kind of greater in the peak of that trend. The birth of Jesus, on the other hand, has no forerunner. It is like no birth that has ever come before. Not coming to a womb that has suffered barrenness, but coming to a womb that has never known a man. Born not of an elderly woman, but of of a virgin. That, That had never happened before. So we get the sense even there that this baby is going to be greater. Back in verse 15, we learned that John would be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. So even, even when his mother's pregnant with him, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. But in verse 35, we learn that Jesus is conceived by the Holy Spirit. So once again, in some way greater. And finally, in verse 17, we learn that John will make ready for the Lord a people prepared. He will get everyone ready to receive the Lord. And so who must the second baby be then? That must be the Lord that John is preparing them for. So all that anticipation for John. And he is just the forerunner to Mary's baby. That anticipation just bursts in the story. Do you feel that? Like what is the Lord going to do? He's going to do something marvelous something incredible. So there's the anticipation. Now, what can we learn from that anticipation that Luke Luke writes into that story? Well, what we learn is if the whole Old Testament was building up to this, and then Luke builds up even more to the birth of this child, what we learn really simply is that Jesus is the central figure in the Bible. He is the main character in the Bible. That means that everything that happened before he came just built up to him. And everything that happens after he leaves is a repercussion of him having come and looks forward and anticipates him coming again. The whole book revolves around Mary's son, around Jesus Christ. And that changes for some of us the way that we look at this book. Some of us look at the Bible as as a book of of rules, and we may say that with affection, or we may say that with disdain. People say it either way, right? Some would say, this book is full of good rules for life. This book is full of good rules for societies. If we would just build Western society on this book, it would be good for us. And others will say, oh, this book is just full of rules and they're restricting and they're oppressive and they keep me from being who I really am. The thing these two perspectives have in common is both of them see the Bible as a book of rules. 
But if Jesus is the central figure of the Bible, then it's not ultimately about the rules. No, it's ultimately about a person. The rules point to the person. The laws point to the king. The whole book is about the king. And so while the rules are good and we love the rules, we go to the rules and we say, rules, will will you point us to the king? Will you point us to the Lord that made heaven and earth and designed the world to work this way and who has come in the flesh born of the Virgin Mary because we worship him? And in the same way, others of us would look at the Bible as a book of stories. Some would say the Bible is a book of true stories and we love telling them. We've got to make sure we pass them down to our kids and Others would say the Bible is a book of stories that are, that are just fairy tales and we need to kind of get over and move away from. Both of those folks would know who David is and know who Goliath is and know all about the sling and going into Goliath's forehead. But the book isn't really about the stories. The book is about a person, about a person who wants to have a relationship with you, about a person who came to earth just to do that. And so that means that even the stories are pointing us to Jesus. Even Goliath pointing us forward to a greater enemy who will be defeated. Even Esther with her courage standing before the king of Persia is helping us to anticipate Jesus. Adam and Eve eating fruit that they shouldn't eat is pointing us forward to Jesus. All of these stories are helping our hearts to get ready for this one who has come. And now an angel comes down to earth and tells a woman named Mary, he's coming. He'll be your son, and you're to call his name Jesus. So already we have something we can take to our lives and to our hearts. Many of you read, like me, read this book every day or every morning. And sometimes we feel a little aimless when we're reading the book. Like, what, what are we doing here? Why do we read? I know I'm supposed to, but what am I supposed to be doing when I read this? Well, If Luke is showing us here with that great sense of urgent anticipation that the whole point of the Bible is Mary's baby, is Jesus, now we know who we're looking for when we read the Bible in the morning. You sit down and if you're like me, you've got your perfect cup of coffee in the perfect spot and you've got your pen in the perfect spot and you've got all your stuff and maybe your journal and your Bible reading plan, you've got all your stuff there. Uh, What are you doing in that comfortable chair You're looking for Jesus and his glory. You're looking for Jesus and his ways that you could walk in him. You're looking for Jesus, the Lord of your heart, the king of your heart, the one that the whole book is about. So the point so far then is that this Jesus who will be born of Mary is worthy of our attention. We should be leaning in right now and asking, okay, who is he then? Whatever he is, he's great. I want to receive him. I want to have him as mine. I want to be his. He wants a relationship with me. I want a relationship with him. But but what is he? And to answer that, we look at the words of the angel himself. Let's zoom in on verses 32 and 33. What is Jesus going to be? Who is he now that he's come and gone? He says, he will be great. And will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. So a few things there that 
really, we'll see in a moment, are the same thing. He will be, aside from being great, we've already, we've already caught that, he will be the son of God and the son of David, right? And he'll be called the son of the most high. We could take that as son of God. And then the Lord will give him the throne of his father David and he'll reign forever. So he's the son of David that they have been waiting for. And what I want to show you is that son of God and son of David sound like two different things that the angel is blurring together here. And that's because the two things are actually one. To be the son of God is to be the son of David. And to be that son of David is to be the son of God. Now, it'll take me some time to show you that. And as I show you a few things there, you're going to wonder, wait a minute, how does that connect to what he's talking about? If you feel that way in the next five minutes, stick with me, and I promise it'll all come together in the end. But what does this angel mean when he says that Jesus is both the Son of God and the Son of David? Well, let's look at it this way. In, in ancient days, like the days when the Old Testament was written, Kings could not easily travel from place to place, and they couldn't do a radio broadcast and tell everyone what they wanted them to do, and so they had to kind of get creative in how they extended their arm of authority to places where they were not present, right? How do you rule a city that you may never go to? That's pretty tough, right? No one will ever actually see you. Well, they had two main ways of doing this. One was by setting up an image of themselves, and the other was by installing a covenant son to rule for them. So you may be able to picture like a World War II movie, and there's a a Nazi official working in his desk, and I wonder if you can already picture what's behind him. A big picture of the Fuhrer, right? The big boss. Bigger than the person at the desk. The image of the high ruler is there, even though the ruler's not there, and thus his authority is extended into that office. Or you may imagine that, you know, for a very long time, the coins that we have traded in countries have had the image of the king or the queen of the land, a way of saying that wherever this money is traded, this person rules, right? Caesar rules, or Queen Elizabeth, or I'm sure soon it will be King Charles, right, on, on the money over in England. So, Rulers would use an image of themselves to extend their rule to places where they were not physically present. That's one way they would do it. Another way that they would extend their rule is by installing what they would call a covenant son. They would pick one person in the city, probably somebody who was noble or a ruler, and say, I have set this person over this whole city. I will be to him a father. He is to be to me a son. He is to obey and honor me, and all of you in this city are to obey and honor him. And so through that covenant son, not usually a begotten son, but just a covenant son, he would then extend his rule to that city. Okay, so through images of themselves and through a chosen installed covenant son, a king of old would extend his rule to places where he wasn't physically present. What's that got to do with this? Well, For one thing, in Genesis 1, when Adam is created, he is created in the image of God and given dominion over the birds of the air, the fish of the seas, and all the beasts of the earth, given dominion over the earth. So what's going on there? God is setting up Adam and Eve as king and queen to rule the earth even as he is not always physically present there. He'd come and walk in the cool of the day with them, and then he'd just go do his thing, right? They are ruling in my place over this planet. And that's why we have a certain amount of dominion over the earth. Uh, 
you know the story very much, probably. Uh, the, eventually, Adam and Eve fail to obey God, and they, they're cast out of the garden, and they lose much of their dominion over the earth, but they are promised uh, some descendant of Eve is going to come and fix all of this, right? So that image that Adam once fully was and Eve once fully was alongside him is broken, but we expect it to be restored by a person, by a descendant of Eve. Similarly, if you would flip with me to the end of Luke 3, Adam was the image of God. The last passage of Luke 3 goes from verse 23 to verse 38, and in verse 38 at the very end there, you see the words, the son of Adam, the son of God, right? Now, we all feel like heretics when we read that, right? Like, wait, what? Hold on. Jesus is the Son of God, right? Well, lowercase s, it's different. And what he means is essentially the same thing. Adam is not the begotten Son of God like Jesus is, but he was installed as God's covenant son to rule the earth. So there is Adam, his bride Eve, king and queen, ruling in the image of God as the Son of God, forfeiting that then when they sinned against God, and ever since then, waiting for a descendant of Eve, a descendant of Adam, to come and to rule the earth once again as Adam was intended to do. A true son of God. The image of the invisible God. So we're waiting for that one to come. The son of God. The image of God. Well, we trace our way back to verse 31 in that genealogy. And at the end of that, we see Nathan, the son of David. So we get from Adam to David, and we trust David to Jesus in the genealogy. This is the point of this genealogy. So now, now King David is ruling in Israel. Israel is at one point called the son of God. And the Lord speaks to David and says, your descendants after you, I will be to them a father. They will be to me a son. When they sin against me, I will discipline them. And gives him this great expectation that a son of David is going to come and is going to restore everything that Adam broke, right? Everything Adam failed to do, a son of David, who would also be a son of Adam, who would also be a son of God, is going to do. And so we're waiting for this one to come but none of David's sons after him fulfilled the prophecy. Psalm 2 says of this ruler who's a son of David, ask of me and I will give the nations as your inheritance, the end of the earth as your possession. So this coming son of David is going to rule the whole world, not just a little portion of it like David did. And Psalm 89 says that he is going to rule forever, not just for his life, but forever. And so all the sons of David who come after him, they rule little portions of the world, and then they die, and they don't rule forever. And we're all just going, well, when is this son of David going to come and rule the whole earth forever as was supposed to happen? So we're left at the end of the Old Testament waiting. When will the son of God come? When will the true son of God come and rule? When will the true son of David come and rule? Because when he does, he's going to rule the whole world. He's going to rule forever. And he's going to fix everything. Not just fix Israel. Fix everything. Enter the angel Gabriel who says to Mary, he will be great. He will be the son of the most high. 
and the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Here's the true son of God, the true son of Adam, the true son of David. So when we say that Jesus is son of God and son of David, what we mean is that he is the coming king who is going to rule forever and fix everything. Yeah. Now to be sure, him being son of God means more than that too, right? It means that he is begotten of the Father in eternity past, the second person of the Trinity. He is God the Son. Uh, But here's one thing that it means, that he is that coming king we have been waiting for to rule the whole earth and to fix everything forever. Now the rest of the Bible will tell us what that will look like. He will return again one day, but we see great pictures of what it looked like when he walked the earth. Everything he did, he did as son of God and son of David. In in chapter 4 of Luke, he comes across a man who is possessed by a demon, and the demon shouts at him, I know who you are, the Holy One of God, right? Even the demons recognize him as son of God and son of David. When Jesus says, get out of him, those demons have to obey him. Why do even the demons have to obey him? Because he's not just king of Israel. He's the king of the earth forever, coming to rule and reign forever. This is why in chapter 5 of Luke, Jesus can come across some men who are having trouble fishing. Like they're fishing, they're not catching any fish. And he just says, hey, try your nets on the other side, right? Which that never works, but go ahead and try it anyway. And they do, and they go from having no fish to having too many fish in the nets. Why does he get dominion over the fish? Well, because he's the true son of God, like Adam was intended to be the whole time. He's got dominion over the fish in the sea. This is why in verse 6, they can challenge him for the way he is practicing the Sabbath. And he can say, guys, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. Why does he get to say stuff like that? Because he's the true son of God. He is the king of the earth walking the earth. This is why he teaches with so much authority. This is why he can raise people from the dead. Because he is the true son of God and the true son of David. He's the king who is coming and will fix everything. So what that means for us is that when we look to him, we simply must honor him as king. He's more than savior. He's king. he's, He's more than good teacher and mighty prophet. He's king. And for us, that means several things. At the very least, receiving him as king through faith, honoring him with our lives and our bodies, and honoring him with our worship. That that, that looks something like this, to receive him as king in faith. It means to be well aware that you have owed him your worship and your obedience for your whole life, and you just plain haven't given it to him, right? So many of us are aware of this, right? We owe him our all, and we failed to give it. But he says with an open hand, well, I've come to earth to seek and save the lost. I've come to earth for people like you who failed to do what they were supposed to do. And even I died to pay for sins, and I rose to guarantee eternal life to anyone who would come to me and receive me. So receiving him as king means looking to promises like that in faith and saying, I trust you to be everything you say you are. And I need you to be everything you say you are. Would you rescue me from my sin? Now there's faith. 
There's a faith that receives Jesus Christ as king. And so my call to all of you is receive him just like that, in faith, as king. Find your sins forgiven. Find the king of the earth on your side, looking to you, calling you my brother, my son, one whom I love. You can receive all these things through faith in Jesus Christ. That's a little of what it means to receive him as king. If he is your king, if you do laud him and honor him as king, well, that means honoring him with your body and with your life, doesn't it, right? Now, my body is his. I consider that good news because I cannot raise myself from the dead, but he can. So I need a Lord that can raise me from the dead. You too need a Lord, a king who can raise you from the dead because you can't do it yourself. But if you're his, he comes back and he says, get up and walk. Now that's the future for those whose bodies belong to Jesus. What's the present look like? Well, in the present, it means everything from what we put in our bodies to what clothes we put on our bodies to to who we're intimate with and how we handle our bodies ethically. It all belongs to the Lord now. We have jettisoned the lie that says, I follow my heart or my body, my choice. We say, no, his body, right? This thing belongs to him now, his choice. And so we still enjoy food, but we receive it as a gift from God. We don't eat too much. We eat the right amount of it. We try to stay as healthy as we can. We're going to have a big feast here. We're going to thank God, right? That's what we do with food. We honor the Lord with it. That means when it comes to drugs and chemicals and medicines, we use them to heal as best we can, but we don't use them to intoxicate ourselves because he forbids that so many times in the Proverbs and so many other places. So we're not using alcohol to intoxicate ourselves. We're not using whatever form of marijuana they invent next, edibles or some kind of gummy that I won't even know what it is. We don't use any of that to intoxicate ourselves. No, we only use what God has given through herbs and medicine to, to heal and to better And it means that when it comes to what we put on, the clothes we put on, no longer do our clothes glorify us. We don't wear anything that makes people say, ooh, look how awesome that person is, right? But we we follow the Lord now, who's Lord of our bodies, and he says, uh, modesty, dress, dress with modesty. And he says to live with love for others, not expression of yourself. And so now, We're wearing clothes that show modesty. We're wearing clothes that honor the people we're going to be with and see and love others rather than clothes that express ourselves and tell everybody how great we are because we're not Lord anymore. We're not king, right? He is king over us. And of course, it means that what we do with our bodies and how we define it, well, now we're under the king and it's good news. So if he has the authority to walk the earth and say, from the beginning, God made the male and female. And therefore, a man leaves his father and mother and unites to his wife, and the two become one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And he says, there's the definition of marriage. Well, then, there's our definition of marriage. There's our definition of manhood. There's our definition of womanhood. Not given by a guy in a pulpit who wants to control people, but given by the king of kings who says, here's what a man is, here's what a woman is, and here's what marriage is. Now, you may hear that and say, now, who are you to tell me what you think 
my manhood is or my womanhood is and what you think I should do with my body and who you think I should go to bed with. Who gave you the authority to tell me what you think about that? And the answer to that is nobody. I don't have the authority to tell you what I think you should do with your body. But God the Father gave that authority to his son, Jesus Christ, who walked the earth with authority and says, here's what a man is, here's what a woman is, here's what marriage is, what God has joined together, let no man separate. And I'm not calling you to me, I'm calling you to him, to look to him as king and give him the authority to assign you a gender, to tell you what it means, to tell you what marriage is. This is all part of coming under the kingship of Christ and jettisoning our sense of authority over our own bodies. Finally, honoring Jesus as king means honoring him with our worship, right? And that's hard for us to imagine because we've never really paid homage to a king before, have we? We don't have kings here in the States. We don't think very highly of the royals overseas in England anyway, and so the idea of honoring a king is just kind of strange to us. We instead give our honor and our reverence and our trembling hearts to our celebrities, right? Somebody's got to receive our honor, so we give it to celebrities, I was just talking to a barista in a coffee shop as she was getting some coffee together, and she had spent three and a half hours the day before online to get Taylor Swift tickets. And this is a big, like, fiasco now that came up, right? And uh, she wasn't embarrassed by it. She was just like, oh, it was so frustrating, but you know what? I'm going to do it. Uh, And I think she's a believer. She's probably in church right now, wherever she is. And uh, I'm just wondering... For someone who, who has that high regard for, for an entertainer like Taylor Swift, what would she do if she were sitting in church right now and the real live Taylor Swift came down and, and, and came to the door and sat down right next to her? How would she react, right? Now, for some of you, you're like, I'd probably leave, right? But what if it were instead John Piper or David Jeremiah in the flesh, or Peyton Manning in the flesh walks in, sits down right next to you, and you try to gather some words to speak to him and just tell him how highly you think of him, but what actually comes out is, <laughs> right? Because when you're, when you're in the presence of somebody that you just consider on another plane, on another level, that kind of stuff happens, right? We tremble a little bit. We, we lose our words, Well, what I want to say is that if Jesus is really on another level, if he's really king of the universe, and he's really here with us right now, that kind of reverence and honor that we would give to a famous person, he's worthy of many, many times over. If you had to wait online for three and a half hours to get tickets to be here, It would be worth that every week because the Son of God and the Son of David is here in the room as we meet together. So what we owe him as king is to look to him with that kind of reverence and say with trembling hearts, the King of kings is here. The Son of God is here. The Son of David is here. So, 
Let's do this. Let's pray right now and let's ask the Lord, would you give us that kind of heart as we sing this last song to you?